Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to this 100th edition of the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, speaking to you from Toronto. It's been almost two years since we launched this podcast. Episode number one aired on November 8th, 2018, under the title, Jordan Peterson on the Dreadful Attraction of Utopian Ideas. Since then, our first 99 episodes have been downloaded more than 2 million times. Thank you to all our listeners who have turned what was originally a side project into a popular franchise in and of itself. For this 100th episode, we've got something special. An interview with the woman who made this all possible when she started Quillette on a whim in late 2015. I am speaking, of course, about my boss, Claire Lehman, who spoke to me this week from her home in Sydney, Australia. I know that it's considered politically suspect to ask female executives about work-life balance because men typically don't get asked that. No, it's a thing. I mean, (laughs) we're both skeptical of political correctness, but it's true. The thing is, I am going to ask you about work-life balance because since we've worked together for a couple of years... It's just a matter of routine that sometimes we'll be talking. You say, oh, I got to take my kids to school or, you know, in some cases, medical care. And and you know about my work life balance issues because I have three kids. Uh, So I'm going to ask the obvious question. You're you're a mom. Has it been difficult to manage a successful business when you've got two young kids? Yes, it's been very difficult. And I rely on you guys, my team, to make it all work. But thankfully, as my children have gotten a little bit older, it is getting easier now. And I'm happy to report that I can reconcile the conflicts of family and work a little bit better. Whenever people come after you on social media or something, I, in order to, to remind them that you're a young mother starting this business, I've resorted to increasingly <laughs> piteous images of you with, with the baby and... Uh, I've yeah. played on that image, but it actually is true. I think when most people have young children, the last thing they're thinking of is starting a business. Though in your case, I happen to know there were a lot of other things that were coming into focus in your life. For instance, I think you had walked away from a possible academic career. Is that something you would do again to start a business right as you're starting a family? I wouldn't recommend it as something people should try to do or, or aspire to do. However, I'm glad that I I did it and although it has been challenging, it has also been rewarding in ways that I couldn't anticipate. And the other thing is that for women who have children, being a business owner is actually quite liberating at the same time because one works for oneself, one chooses one's own hours and although there's a great deal of responsibility that comes with working on one's own enterprise, you're not answerable to a boss who doesn't necessarily care about you or your children. So in that respect, it is rewarding and worthwhile. For a lot of the essays we work on as writers or editors, they're passion projects. And it's a difficult thing to to shut it off. I mean, unless you have superhuman abilities to compartmentalize. I know that in my case, if I'm working on something, 
even if I say, well, I'm going to spend four hours with my kids or six hours or eight hours, these things are inside our head. I mean, all journalists, I think, probably have this issue, but it's maybe it's a little different. For instance, if you're a sports reporter, when the game's over, you write up your report, and maybe it's a little bit more compartmentalized, even though, of course, on Twitter and stuff, there's always news. But because of the sort of journalism you practice at Quillette, do you find it sometimes especially challenging to focus on things other than work? Yes, it can be difficult to switch off, particularly when the rewards that we get from the work that we do are derived internally. And we know that we can really make an impact on someone's life if they're, if they're trying to tell a story that is not going to get an audience elsewhere or there's a story of real injustice and we can give a platform to it that isn't available anywhere else. It's incredibly rewarding and it can be all-consuming. However, I have found that since the pandemic and since polarization in the United States has particularly uh, increased lately, that I am get, getting better at just switching off and, and putting all of the issues that we deal with on a daily basis at Quillette over into a box and compartmentalizing it. And just because one has to, to want to keep one's sanity. A lot of the stuff we do at Quillette involves helping people who maybe have been mobbed. Because Quillette has been successful and because part of its brand comes from helping people, I'm guessing that your inbox is an order of magnitude bigger than mine in terms of the number of people who are coming to you saying, help me, I've been fired, or I've been terminated, or this or that. There obviously comes a point where there's only 24 hours in the day, and you only have so many editors. Would it be correct to say that sometimes you just have to say, I just don't have time for that? And is that difficult? It's very difficult to provide the support that people need and want, particularly as the volume increases. I receive dozens of emails or direct messages on social media every week uh, from people who scared for their jobs, either in the tech industry or academia or even media, uh, people who feel like they can't be themselves and they can't be honest for fear of saying the wrong thing or not fitting into the orthodoxies in their profession. And there just aren't that many avenues for people to express their frustration or their disappointment or their fear about what's happening in the culture. Uh, we're one of the only avenues, I think, for people to find a voice and where people know that their concerns will be understood. And so I do receive a very large volume of messages from people and I'm unable to respond to all of them, which is disappointing. And I used to feel very, very guilty about it, but I've become to a place where I just accept that I don't have the capacity to reply to everybody. But yes, it is a challenge and it does seem to be accelerating. One issue that's come up for me as an editor at Quillette is that sometimes someone comes to you in the heat of a controversy and says, I, I need to tell my story. I want to blow the lid off an academic institution or whatnot. And you, you, <laughs> you love the story, but you have a sense that a week from now, maybe the author will be like, mm, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. I know that I have done this where I've just said to the person, I said, look, this is fantastic. Let's talk in a week yeah. after yeah. maybe you've had a chance to talk to your spouse or your colleagues. This story is going to blow up the Internet, but it's also going to blow up your life a little bit. Are you sure you want to do it? And, and by the way, sometimes they come back and say, I was in a week ago and I'm doubly in now. 
but you know, I, I had one. I think you know about the story. It was uh, here in Canada. It was a year. It was a great story. We had a copy edited, and I, I had a sense. The author was a young woman, and I had a sense she wasn't completely committed. And and when I asked her, I, she she said, I'm, "I'm having doubt," and she never went ahead. Have Have you had situations like that? Definitely, and I find that particularly when it's a story about an injustice occurring in a university, these stories are often very complicated, and. You know, I think that's because universities are labyrinthian institutions and often the injustice that occurs to people has happened somewhere in the process. And so figuring out just where the process has broken down can be a difficult task and requires some investigation. And then sometimes people just need time to pass because the issue is still too raw for them and they need some hindsight to be able to conceptualize what has really happened to them. There's, there's a, a specific type of Quillette article where a person writes an article for Quillette and then writing the article itself gets them in trouble and then they write a follow-up article about the reaction. <laughs> so as a Quillette editor it's like you're getting two articles in one. It's like you get the first article and then you get the follow-up. But what's interesting is I'm not sure they've ever come back to us and gotten mad at us. The story that immediately comes to my mind is that of Stuart Regis, a computer science lecturer at the University of Washington, who wrote an incredibly brave article for us a couple of years ago about why there are fewer women taking computer science courses at university. And it was a very well-reasoned well thought out essay he incorporated all of the relevant evidence and he debated the um you know the evidence for his argument the evidence against his argument it was just a really good piece of work anyway he got in trouble at his institution for that essay and he wrote a follow-up article and the title was is reading this sexual harassment because it was some people complained in his institution that his article about why there were why there are fewer women in computer science was itself sexual harassment so that's the episode that comes to my mind and then then after that we had another article from Stuart which had the title demoted and placed on probation and he discusses what happened to him largely because of his writing for our platform. And yes, I mean, it's the, these, these essays that people write for us, they're incredibly brave and they have real-life consequences. And I'm incredibly proud to be able to host some of these brave individuals. We're in the midst of another situation like that a little bit with a, a Princeton professor who wrote a, a great piece for us. That's right. And some Princeton faculty members, along with students, have recommended that he be put under a formal inquiry. So it is all quite scary. Now, he has tenure. And of course, I guess it's, it's different when you're dealing with someone with tenure yeah. who's a veteran of the university scene and, and knows the risks. But I'm guessing it's always more tricky when you are dealing with maybe someone in their 20s who's just starting out their university career. And, and I don't know how much you want to talk about it. You saw the inside of the academy, and I guess it left you sort of jaded. Although, I, I, if I remember correctly, it wasn't so much politics, it was just the cynicism and some of the institutional issues you faced there. So my story of disillusionment with the university system is a little bit different to the stories that we typically publish at Quillette. 
what I was studying was forensic psychology. I was studying a professional master's and the point of conflict for me was the requirement of postgraduate students to do a very high volume of hours of unpaid work in a clinic attached to the university. And what I saw in this clinic I felt was potentially unethical. I thought mm. that students were being exploited for their labor, which they were providing for free. They weren't being supervised. A lot of their work wasn't count being counted towards their degree. I raised some concerns with an external body the universe, my university was then investigated and the accreditation for the particular course that I was in was downgraded. Anyway, long story short, I got into trouble for being a whistleblower and I ended up having to withdraw from my degree. And it's interesting because we publish a lot of stories about people being censored or receiving retaliation for their non-conformist political views. But the issue that I was aggrieved with was a typical left-wing concern and that is the exploitation of labor yeah but that shouldn't surprise anyone i remember from what i know you you actually handed out leaflets for a left of center political party when you were young is that right yeah so i identified as a leftist until my mid-20s and i did hand out how to vote cards for the australian labor party and uh, i remember handing out how to vote cards for penny wong many years ago an Australian senator who has a constituency in Adelaide. I think I became disillusioned with leftist politics or I became politicised probably in 2011 or 2012, around that time, maybe 2013, when I started reading what I thought was very biased journalism in the newspaper, uh, particularly around issues of gender and feminism. I remember reading a couple of articles which were arguing that scientists were sexist for telling women that uh, they have a biological clock. And I, was, I just had this reaction to this narrative that, you know, science was somehow in conflict with feminism or women's rights. I thought that was very wrong and backwards. And I think that's when I became politicized, when I saw more and more of that in the mainstream media. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and, of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested 
that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. I guess there's a certain laziness that comes for a male editor knowing that he has a female boss and that if anyone accuses me of sexism, I could just say, (laughs) take it up with Claire. On that issue, do you feel you have more latitude? Of course. My identity, and I hate to use the expression lived experience as a woman, makes me feel authoritative when discussing issues around feminism and gender, but also my educational background. So I spent many years reading all of the canonical feminist texts, and then I spent years reading psychology and evolutionary psychology. So I feel like I understand how the question of gender and gender relations has been answered by different from different points of view. And I've spent a long time trying to um, come to my own conclusions and viewpoints on questions relating to gender. So in that respect, I do feel authoritative. Since this is the 100th episode of the podcast, and there's a kind of landmark quality to it, I want to at least take a brief trip down memory lane to the, the early days of Quillette. And as some listeners may know, I wasn't around for the first two years. Do you remember the day you hit the publish button? I guess it was on WordPress on the very first Quillette article that you ran? What happened was I decided to start Quillette on a whim, basically. It was the day after I had dropped out of my master's program and I was very upset and I wanted to preoccupy myself with something to do so I didn't wallow in my sadness and uh, I decided to start a website. And I remember that evening brainstorming names for a website with my husband Harry and Harry said to me you've got to get the .com whatever the name is of your website you've got to have the domain name with the .com in it and so I was brainstorming some names that started with Q and for some reason Quillette came into my brain and I looked up whether the .com was available and it was. After that I transferred the old articles on my blog over to Quillette. So I had a blog called clairelayman.net where I published articles about gender, which is what I was mostly interested in at the time. And I took those articles over and I played around with this private website and just played around with how it looked and got it all ready to go. And then I asked Jamie Palmer to write an article for me. And what was it on? What was the subject? The title was The Shame and Disgrace of the Pro-Islamist Left about a liberal feminist uh, ex-Muslim activist called Mariam Namazi who was de-platformed at a British university by an LGBT group who had teamed up with the Islamic students group to de-platform her. This was back in 2015, so quite a while ago now. Did you know at the time that this was like the prototypical Quillette article? Because I was afraid I was going to ask you this question and you're going to tell me it was like a jam recipe or something (laughs) like that. And I should tell listeners that I wanted to include Jamie on this podcast, but Jamie is he's the ultimate backroom guy. Unlike me and Toby, he doesn't like to ham it up on the podcast. 
So I knew Jamie Palmer from Twitter. He's in London and I'm in Sydney, so we didn't know each other personally, but I knew of him and I knew I read some of his writing. He had his own blog and I just thought it was of such exceptional quality. I couldn't believe that he didn't have job as a columnist at, you know, the top British newspaper. And there were a handful of people like that that I knew of just through social media who I thought were world-class thinkers, really original thinkers and good writers. I thought they were underutilized. Basically, I just saw an opportunity. He's not only a great writer, but he's he's a great editor. And in fact, uh, as we're having this conversation, I feel guilty because as you and I both know, he is waist deep in a 45,000 word piece. He's a, he's a very hard worker. But Jamie is not the only, let's call it bargain stock that you've managed to get hold of. Like, not to put too fine a point on it, but you were in a real buyer's market when it came to this landscape where maybe for political or ideological reasons, or people got in trouble on social media, there's just these great talents, and sometimes they just walk through our front door. Like you did, John. <laughs> well, I don't know about me, but like, you know, we had uh, Lawrence Krauss yeah. in our pages. And he's a guy, you know, he, he had his dust up a few years back. But he's a guy whose work on energy in the universe, it inspired the work of Nobel Prize winning scientists. And I mean, he's a huge name. And the idea of a guy like that just walking through the front door and then we publish him and then we have him on a podcast, it's almost like a an investor who, who, who finds undervalued stocks. And another example would be Coleman Hughes who walked mm, straight yeah. in through the front door as well. And one of the most rewarding things of the project so far has been when Coleman told me that he was inspired to write his first essay for us because we existed and that wow. that was incredibly flattering to hear that i would say that part of the reason why we are able to attract high quality talent is because we actually are meritocratic so we're an international organization that is dispersed all over the world and people don't get to us through channels like cocktail parties or being friends with friends of ours we just assess people's writing when they send it in and we just assess it on its merits. So it doesn't really matter if someone doesn't have the social skills to really suck up to you at some kind of New York party. If their writing is good, we will publish it. Uh, so I think that's been a strength. One of our strengths is that we're not part of some old nepotistic system which just rewards people for the networks that they're in. Uh, we reward people for their talent. <laughs> cough, cough, Jamie Palmer. <laughs> I think of our team, Toby Young is the most extroverted. Yeah. By his own admission, Toby will often describe his social encounters <laughs> more in terms of making enemies than making friends sometimes. <laughs> you're in Australia, and you just identified a good part of it, that you're not on the cocktail party circuit in, in London or New York. So it's. But you also have to take these ridiculous 24-hour flights whenever you get invited to speak at a conference. Yeah. And also, I mean, let's face it, there's been one or two challenges we've had where it's evening for me and the middle of night for Jamie and, and Toby and you're just waking up and we're trying to coordinate stuff. Yeah. Have you ever thought this would be easier if I lived in New York? The time zone issue has to be the most difficult challenge I've dealt with in running an international business. Whenever someone wants to have a meeting with me, it's either 
the time when I'm putting my kids to bed or dropping them off at school or daycare or it's in the middle of the night for me. Australia is a lovely place to live, but um, the time zone challenge is, is a very real one. And I have thought about relocating, but I think one of the strengths of Quillette and one of the strengths of our editorial position is that we are somewhat detached from some of the, particularly the culture war issues and the partisan political issues consuming the United States right now. And the, the US is 50% of our audience. So I think the fact that we can remain somewhat detached from domestic partisan politics in the United States is a good thing and that if I was living in North America I wouldn't be able to be as detached as I am. I think our readers appreciate it. It's refreshing to be able to not have partisan politics sort of shoved down your throat 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal, a high-protein, low-carb solution for people who love their cereal but also want to eat healthy. Like many of the people listening to this, I went through my low-carb phase a few years back, but I gave it up because I couldn't resist familiar foods, breakfast cereal in particular. And that's where Magic Spoon comes in. Magic Spoon isn't literally magic, like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, but it is magic in the idiomatic sense. How else to describe a delicious and satisfying breakfast cereal that contains zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving? Like you, I was skeptical, which is why I insisted on trying Magic Spoon before recording this ad. I also served it to my wife and daughters, who enjoyed it as much as I did, and are pestering me to get more, in fact. After tasting the whole product line, I can attest that the fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors are delicious. Magic Spoon also comes in cocoa flavor. I'm also supposed to emphasize that, as well as being low-carb, Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free. And that's all true, no doubt, but the magic thing about this product, the reason it makes the magic happen in your cereal bowl, as it were, is that it achieves all this without tasting like something you might find in a health food store medicine cabinet. If you want to experience some of the same magic, Go to magicspoon.com slash Quillette to grab a variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code Quillette with two L's and two T's at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash Quillette and use the code Quillette for free shipping. Thanks to Magic Spoon for their sponsorship. And now, back to our podcast. So I'm going to ask you one final question, then I'll let you go. We have this website. We have this podcast that I hope people are enjoying. What's next in your plan for world domination? Well, what's coming up next for Quillette? We've just hired Colin Wright, who's a has a PhD in evolutionary biology, and he has written for the Wall Street Journal, on issues around biological sex. So he's come on board our editorial team, which is very exciting. We're gonna start doing a series of live events soon for our readers with some high profile speakers. We're working on a couple of projects, including a book project and potentially another project where we publish stories from people uh, anonymously about how they feel censored in their workplaces. So a lot is happening 
And we are going to grow. This is a crucial year as legacy institutions showing that they are not remaining committed to objectivity and truth. I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way, but we've just seen with the exit of Barry Weiss from the New York Times and even Andrew Sullivan from the New York Magazine that more and more legacy institutions are becoming captured by a certain kind of ideological groupthink. And so we're really one of the only platforms or avenues available that retains some of the more traditional notions of commentary and journalism in that we rely on evidence, we rely on reason, we're committed to debate and we don't have all the answers. We think that we find solutions to problems through working through them, considering different perspectives, different viewpoints, considering the evidence. Uh, and, And that approach to finding the truth is becoming less and less popular, which is very sad, but it means that we have a duty and a responsibility to grow and fill in the vacuum that is being left by some of these older institutions. Well, good stuff. And thank you. I know you're you're a host of the podcast, but this is, I think, the first time that uh, listeners have been able to hear you at length and hear about the inception of Quillette. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for being a great guest. Talk soon. Thanks, John. Cheers. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.